Whenever you're ready. Unless someone hates mother, brother, sisters, wife, and his own life also, he can't be my disciple. Hard words from Jesus. Harsh words? No. Was he telling us that we should hate our family? No. Was he an advocate of hate? No. What was he saying? He was counteracting the spirit of the age which says family is everything. He was saying that the demand placed on a disciple by Jesus far exceeds the importance of the demands put on his disciple by wife, mother, brother, sisters, earthly father, and by his own life and needs also. Didn't say you can't be saved, said you can't be my disciple. A disciple is someone who listens without distraction. A disciple of Jesus Christ is someone who fulfills the words that we spoke of in our last increment, which really struck me as I read them recently. It's from the French Christian philosopher Paul Ricoeur, R-I-C-O-E-U-R, who said, I leave off all demands and listen. That's what Jesus was saying when he said, unless you hate mother, brothers, sisters, wife, your own life also. He meant my disciples are those who hear my word and keep it, but he meant that my disciples leave off all other demands and listen. They listen to me. They listen for my words. They listen for my wisdom. So much of Christianity today by people who assume themselves to be the followers of Jesus, are not true disciples of his. Oh, they'll listen to his word, but they won't leave off all demands and listen exclusively to him. So they don't really get the insights that are required for true enlightenment. And so, I'm not saying this to condemn I'm saying this to pull us all up short and to say, let's be careful to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. To be careful to listen is to let all other demands go. It's not to be irresponsible toward our families, of course not. but it's to be captured by the one needful thing. And it's to be captured by the ultimate concern, 
Is it a hard thing to ask? It might be. But James is right to say to put off all superfluity, all other demands is what he was saying, and the contamination of sinful desires, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. And so, Father, as we approach increment 202 of our Hebrews 2020 series, we pray that you'll grant us the grace to be disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant us the grace to leave aside all other demands from whatever quarter in this world and listen. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. An infinitely superior hope. Back into our text in Hebrews 7.18. For on the one hand, there was an annulment of the previous commandment because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing complete. Verse 19a. B, on the other hand, there is the introduction of a better hope. Cretonas Elpidos, see it in print, a better hope. The introduction of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And none of this happened without the taking of an oath. See, we're picking up hope like taffy being stretched before it hits the ground we're picking up the theme again of hope that's what he's doing here picking up the theme again of hope that was found in Hebrews 6:18 to 20 and throughout Hebrews he also picks up before it hits the floor the oath concept which also came up in Hebrews 6:13 through 20 and really was hinted at all the way back in Hebrews 3:7 through 11, which was a citation of Psalm 95, 7 through 11, 94, Septuagint. In Hebrews 6.20, the hope that we have, which is ours, which we possess, is identical to Jesus. For when Jesus entered into the region beyond the veil, in the heavenly holy of holies, hope entered into the region beyond the veil. Therefore, Jesus is our hope. If you have trouble with this or find it a little bit oversimplified, then maybe you'll see it as it's made explicit in 1 Timothy 1.1, where Paul is said to be, quote, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Christu Jesu tes elpidos hemon. Christ Jesus our hope. Now this in First Timothy one one in turn may be an allusion to Jeremiah fourteen eight where Yahweh is called 
hope of Israel. When the prophet addressed him in prayer, he said, hope of Israel. And this hope of Israel, Yahweh, is also, quote, its savior in time of distress. This is so important to us on the level of our own time and on the personal level of our own lives and family lives and national lives. Christ Jesus, also known as Yahweh Yeshua, is our hope too. Jesus is the Savior from our sins. As the angel said to Joseph, you will name the son born to Mary Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, Matthew 121. And he's not only our Savior from our sins, and this is important, not only the Savior from our sins, for the scripture says, He is also our Savior in times of distress. Whether that distress is self-inflicted or not. On the cross, he saved us from our sins. For the scripture says, he was handed over for our sins and raised for our justification in Romans 4.25. And according to the scriptures... Christ died for our sins, 1 Corinthians 15.3. On top of this, 1 John 2.1-2 calls Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the propitiation or expiation. Either one works. Not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. This same Christ Jesus saves us in times of distress from his position in heaven as our great arch priest. For again, as the scripture says, in the power of an indestructible life, due to his resurrection from the dead, he always lives to make intercession for us to save us completely. That's Hebrews 7.25. In saving us completely, he saves us in times of distress. Ultimately, he saves us to the point of our bodily resurrection when we too will live in bodies of incorruption and immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, 53, Philippians 3, 20, and Hebrews 9, 28. This is when we not meet the Lord in the air, but greet the Lord in the air. It's not meeting him and going away with him as rapturous like to think in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, 13 to 18. It's we greet him in the air on his way down to the earth to restore all things. We don't meet him. Oh, we meet him, but it more means we greet him. We don't meet him to go away with him. We greet him come down with him back to the earth which he restores making a new heavens and a new earth that's at the time of our bodily resurrection when he comes to save us when he appears the second time Hebrews 9 28 
This is the kind of archpriest that perfectly fits our need in the present and fits all of our need. For we need salvation, not only from our sins, but from every distress. In the present time, therefore, we are urged to, quote, go to the throne of grace to receive timely grace and mercy to help in times of need. And that means also in times of distress. The throne of grace is so called because Jesus, the Son of God, is our great archpriest who has passed through the heavens to be our representative, our advocate. The introduction of a better hope in Hebrews 7.19 is the introduction of Jesus himself, the debut of our great archpriest, who though, quote, he was crucified in weakness, asthenea, same word in Hebrews, Hebrews 7.18, found in 2 Corinthians 13.4. He was crucified in weakness, but he now lives by the power of God. Compare Hebrews 7.16 with 2 Corinthians 13.4. The power of God by which Jesus lives is the antithesis, the complete opposite of the weakness of the previous commandment associated with the protocol of Levitical priests and the animal sacrifices. God sent his son who was born of a woman and born under the law, says Galatians 4.4. He who was born under the law, which was weak, was crucified in weakness. Go and learn what that means. In his death and in his resurrection from the dead, all as one event, God exposed the weakness of the law and the antithesis of it, the power of God. Christ is the power of God, of course, in 1 Corinthians 1, 24. In Romans 8, 3, and we're going to run the iron over this passage a couple times. Romans 8, 3, it says, For what the law was powerless to do, please note, the law was powerless Romans 8, 3 correlating splendidly with Hebrews 7, 18. The law was powerless to do because it was rendered impotent by the flesh. Capital F there, the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, the likeness of sinful human flesh, that means, with a small f, and for the removal of, of sin, I put removal of in brackets because that's what's intended and sent, that's the sense. He condemned sin in the flesh, meaning there in the flesh of his son. There are three uses of the word flesh in that one verse. Flesh as a suprahuman enemy, which weakened the law. Sinful flesh, which is sinful humanity. And the flesh of the son the flesh that the word became. In the flesh that the word became, God condemned sin on the cross. So it says, again, what the law was powerless to do, and then it says God did. 
The powerlessness of the law includes the weakness and uselessness of the previous commandment of the law, which made weak men priests. Skip over to Hebrews 7.28 and read this. The law appoints men as priests who have inherent, meaning sinful, weakness. But the word of the oath appoints a son, a son. This goes all the way back to Hebrews 1.2. Who has been perfected, meaning perfected in his vocation as archpriest forever. The former weak law appointed weak men to be priests. So the whole commandment was weak. The word of the oath, which says you are a priest forever, appointed a son, eternal son of God, or perhaps better, the son, as the word appears in Hebrews 1-2. This son has been perfected forever in that he has not only become complete in his vocation as priest forever, but his self-sacrifice has perfected forever all those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 10.14 So the introduction or the debut of a better hope is the incarnation, the life lived in the days of his flesh, the obedience to the extent of death on the cross, and resurrection from the dead of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the introduction of a better hope. The introduction of a better hope than that offered through the law-appointed priests of the Old Testament is Jesus. The introduction of that better hope is Jesus, who, far from God, experienced death for everyone and is now crowned with glory and honor in Hebrews 2.9 and lives by the power of God in 2 Corinthians 13.4 to intercede for all of humanity as the sole and only mediator between the one and only God and the totality of humankind. The introduction of a better hope is similar to the coming of faith. I'll say that again because it's a new thing. The introduction of a better hope is similar to the coming of faith in Galatians 3:23 to 25, which is equated with the coming of Christ. The coming of faith is the coming of Christ. Christ is the embodiment of hope as he is the embodiment of faith. Hope and faith are both embodied in Jesus, and so, of course, is love. Herein is love that he laid down his life for us. The, that's 1 John 3.16. The law was a disciplinarian, sometimes translated a schoolmaster until Christ came. His faithful obedience to the death of the cross ended the tenure of this authoritarian schoolmaster. A better hope means that we have a better expectation than the one offered by the law and its appointment of priests who offered animal sacrifices that could not take away sins, nor could it take away the consciousness of sins, nor could it in any way perfect or complete those who try to draw near to God through them. Now we can have the confident expectation that when we draw near to God, he hears us in prayer. 
We may now confidently and with boldness enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus through a new and living way, says Hebrews 10, 19 to 21. That new and living way is the king's highway. The highway paved with the blood of Jesus which passes through the curtain of his torn flesh and into the presence of God where we as persons made holy can stand in the presence of a holy God and we who are made righteous can encounter the righteous Father in perfect love. For not only did God make Jesus sanctification for us, but he also made him righteousness for us. He is our holiness. He is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 He who knew no sin was made to be sin, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Such is the just and mysterious law of the cross. Succinctly stated. For by that law, the evils of the human race are transformed into the supreme good. Even the most egregious of sinners and the most evil of men and women are made the righteousness of God in Christ. For in Christ, all the old things have passed away. And behold, look, All things have been made entirely new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 No matter how evil and sinful the old man is, he was made to disappear in the whole burnt offering of the Lamb of God. Without this sanctification, no one would ever see God, says Hebrews 12.14. But God has made Christ Jesus to be sanctification for us. So we will all see God. For our hearts have been purified by his faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 He who sanctifies and we who are sanctified by him are all now of one entity. Hebrews 2.11 And that's precisely because God has made Jesus to be sanctification for us by so much God is pro nobis for us there's no room for any human flesh to boast now oh no now we see the Lord we see Jesus and in seeing him we see the father there is no room for the flesh to boast I said and that includes boasting by saying I'm better than they are at least I haven't done that, at least. Arrogance. There's no room for any flesh to boast. Now we see the Lord. We see Jesus, and in seeing him, we see the Father. And when he appears in his universal appearing, we will see him in all the essence of his eternal divinity and true humanity and we will be like him in that true humanity for we will see him as he is and we will see our true selves in him and become 
our true selves. No matter how false the false self is, it is consumed in the one who is true. No matter how unrighteous the old man, it is dissolved in the righteous one and made new in Jesus Christ, the new eschatological man. No matter how ungodly the former person was, he or she is made godly in the one who is God and man. No matter how idolatrous the idolater, he or she will be transformed to be a perfect worshiper of the one true God. No matter how unfaithful we have been, the faithful one remains faithful, and he'll only deny our former faithless self as he makes us faithful. We can say all these things, and I do say all these things, and say them unequivocally because of the introduction of a better hope. A better hope that could ever be offered by the law or by the regulations to the priesthood after the order of Aaron. Though the pleasant goodness of the togetherness of the family of God in Psalm 133 is like the oil that was poured on Aaron's head and covered all his garments down to the tassels of his priestly robe. That oil is now the oil of gladness, which was used in the anointing of the one to whom God said, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the blessing that is commanded for all of humanity is eternal life. Psalm 133, compared with 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and John 12, 49, and 50. So let's run the iron over this one more time. Flatten out the wrinkles, maybe extend the iron a little further. Let's run it over one more time and make a little more progress in our exposition of Hebrews. Hebrews 7.18. For on the one hand, there was an annulment of the previous commandment because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing complete, 7.19a. The weakness of the law and its uselessness is revealed in its inability to make anything complete to bring anything to perfection, to finish anything. What does it mean for those who draw near to God then to be made complete, if not made complete in love? The law commanded above all that Israel love God totally, but it could not bring about that total love. The law could not bring about in any Israelite the love of one's neighbor, which it also commanded in Leviticus 19.18. To say nothing of the love of one's enemies. Romans 8. Let's read 3 and go into 4 this time. Run the iron over it, but run it a little further on the garment. Romans 8.3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was rendered impotent by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for the removal of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh of his son. 
in order that the rectitude, that's God-approved livingness, as we put it in Romans, required by the law or Torah, would be fulfilled in us, in those who are liberated from the superhuman powers of sin and death in the flesh, in other words, and the hijacked law. In us, that is, in those who comport themselves in their mortal human bodies in a manner not determined by the flesh, directed or controlled by the flesh, but by the spirit. Later on we find that's the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So the two divine missions solve the problem of the impotence of the law, the sending of the Son as the perfect sin offering, and the sending of the Spirit, that the rectitude required by the law would be fulfilled in us when we walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. In dependence on, not independent from, in dependence on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit pours out throughout our hearts the love of God which fulfills the righteousness of the law, which says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and love your enemies. Well, you've called that previously the plenary manifestation of love. Romans 4.25 to 5.2, there's a paraphrase. Let me paraphrase Romans 4.25 to 5.2 as we continue. Therefore, being justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, in which he was obediently handed over for our sins and then raised for our justification, we have peace with God and access to the grace in which we stand. Similarly, from Romans compared to Hebrews, we approach the throne of grace, the throne of this grace in which we stand, in Hebrews 4.16. So there's a correlation between Hebrews 4.25 to 5.2 and Hebrews 4.14 to 16. In Hebrews 4.16, we have access to grace because we have a great archpriest who passed through the heavens, having executed this justifying, meritorious obedience for us, having been tested in all points and in every way as we are and yet without resorting to sin. Romans doesn't have the explicit reference to the priesthood, but it clearly refers to the priestly aspect of access. Just as Romans 8.34, Paul does not call Jesus our archpriest, but he says that he makes intercession for us, having been raised from the dead, after being handed over as an offering for us all, in Romans 8.32. And in Romans 12.1, no mention is made of a priest or of priests, but, a believer, but believers there are urged to present their bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Again, in Romans 8.32, there's no mention of the lamb, but there's a clear allusion to the lamb that Abraham promised Isaac through his inspired prediction in Genesis 22.8. God will provide himself a sheep, meaning a lamb, for the burnt offering, my son. Unlike Isaac, who was spared becoming the burnt offering, God's son would be the lamb that God would provide for that purpose. And the whole burnt offering is the total holocaust or consuming of this sacrificial lamb 
which is the strongest of the types of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified is Jesus Christ the Lamb consumed, the Lamb of God who takes away, removes, annuls, takes away the sin of the world and in whom the old man was made to disappear. We're on to something here. Maybe you already concluded that. We're on to something here. So the blemishless lamb, the perfect offering, and the sinless priest, our priest, our perfect archpriest, are one and the same person. Jesus' meritorious obedience secured the benefit of justification for himself, Romans 3.26, and for all others, Romans 5.18. He who knew no sin was willingly made to become sin, so he was the perfect sin offering. So 7.19b, on the other hand, there is the introduction of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The better hope through which we draw near to God is Jesus. For Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And in 1 Timothy 1.1, Christ Jesus is openly called, as we've seen, our hope. He is called a better hope because Jesus the priest forever is a better hope than that of the commandment concerning the priests of the old covenant. Jesus as the better hope means that we now have a superior expectation than could be had through the law. Our hope is now the confident expectation of eternal life in indestructible bodies of glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our hope is the confident expectation of righteousness or rectification of all people and all things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Maybe it's time for a thesis or two. The hope offered by the previous commandment and the legislation governing the Levitical priests and the sacrifices that they offered, for example, on Yom Kippur, was the hope that the sins of ignorance of the people of Israel would be ritually purified for another year ritually purified for another year. The hope that was introduced with Jesus is eternal salvation for all humanity made possible through his once and for all and forever self-sacrifice. So he, the priest, was also the offering. The offerer is the offering. The priest is the victim. So even as the judge is judged in our place, the priest is offered in our place and becomes the victim in our place, pro nobis for us. For on the one hand, there was an annulment of the previous commandment, says the Hebrews author, because it was weak and it was useless, for the law made nothing complete. On the other hand, there is the introduction of a better hope through which we draw near to God. We draw near to God in worship, in prayer, in gratitude, we draw near to God to make requests for timely mercy, to intercede for grace to help, 
in our various situations and changing circumstances. We draw near to God boldly and without reservation because in Jesus we have a superior expectation than that offered by the law. In fact, the law offered no hope. It said, do these and you'll live, Deuteronomy 4.1, but offered no empowerment for the doing and therefore no guarantee of life. Say nothing of eternal life. Our hope, on the other hand, is the hope of eternal life. And Jesus is both that hope and that life. I am that life, he said. The hope that was brought in is a better hope because it was brought in with an oath that guaranteed its realization. Hope was not brought in without an oath. Jesus was not declared a priest forever without an oath. Reread Psalm 110.4. Jesus is the better hope that was brought in accompanied by an oath. In seeking the key word for Hebrews, listen carefully to this. In seeking the key word for Hebrews, we need not seek any further than the word Jesus, who is the word made flesh and the sinless one made to be sin so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him and living epistles in the word. The key word in Hebrews is Jesus, whose name will be spoken in praise by every tongue as Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. A better hope is certainly an example of rhetorical understatement, therefore. When we say a better hope, or when the writer wrote a better hope, it was an example of rhetorical understatement. Now, what is a rhetorical understatement? Well, Jesus used one when he said, I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. That was an understatement. He meant for everybody. We know that. We've seen it a hundred times. In the scriptures, as we compared Matthew 20, 28, for example, to 1 Timothy 2, 6. I am meek and lowly of heart, Jesus said. And so he used understatement even about himself. I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. Yeah, what you mean is a ransom for all, right, Lord? Well, yes. Better can easily be rendered infinitely superior, therefore, if we want to talk straight, infinitely superior. In fact, the response that is evoked by this phrase would be something like, better? Don't you mean infinitely superior? That's kind of like what I said when I read this, speaking to the, my brother P.T. way back in Hebrews. Jesus is not only a better hope, He's the absolute assurance of eternal salvation for all, while the former priesthood instituted under the law and all the sacrifices offered by that priesthood offered no such assurance and only served to intensify the consciousness of sin. For in Paul's words, by the law is the consciousness, or the word there is epignosis, which means by the law is the superconsciousness of sin. You're going along, you're not even thinking about sin, and then all of, sudden, all of a sudden the law says, do not covet, and you're going, oh my gosh, I'm aware of my covetousness. 
The law brings a super consciousness of sin. That's what Romans 3.20 says. And the pastor teacher agrees in his own cultic and sacerdotal language by saying that in the yearly sacrifices, meaning of Yom Kippur, there is a reminder of sins every year. Why are we making these offerings? Because of our sins. Instead of easing an already guilty conscience, the old shadow sacrifices brought an annual reminder. The word is anamnesis, a reminder, an aided reminder. Let me help you remember. If you've got a person in your life that helps you remember your sins, they ain't no friend of yours, I'll tell you that right now. So by the law is the superconsciousness of sin, and by the sacrifices ordered under the cultic aspect of the law, there's an annual reminder of sin. Now when I thought of this, I thought, well, you know, we kind of get a renewed appreciation for the Eucharist, the communion, in which there's a remembrance of Jesus, not of sin. A remembrance of Jesus in whom sin was put away. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four to 26. In Hebrews nine twenty six, compared with John one twenty nine. There's not much hope in the law. By which there's an intensified awareness of sin. And there's not much hope in the sacrifices in which there's a poignant reminder of sins. There's not much hope in preaching that only produces the awareness of sin or the reminder of sins either, or the fear of hell for that matter. When we speak of epignosis, and I'll close with this little thought, epignosis. When we speak of epignosis, What is desirable is the epignosis of the truth, not the epignosis of our sins. The epignosis of the truth, capital T, truth, that is embodied in Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.4. God is not only willing to save everyone and desirous and intending to save everyone and resolved to save everyone, but also to bring everyone to the knowledge, epignosis of the truth. The truth that's embodied in Jesus is what is meant in Ephesians 4.21. Or what is desirable is the epignosis of the Son, capital S-O-N, of God in Ephesians 4.13. And not the epignosis of sin, which the law brings about. When we speak of anamnesis, A-N-A-M-N-N, E-S-I-S, anamnesis. When we speak of anamnesis or remembrance, what is needed is not the anamnesis of sins or the remembrance of sins, but the anamnesis of Jesus by whom our sins were taken away. There must have been, in at least some in Israel, the poignant hope of their Messiah, even as they suffered under the intense awareness of their sins. Well, that hope has come. 
It has been introduced. It's Jesus. It's the Lord. And for that, Father, we are grateful for the rest of our lives and throughout all time and eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.